Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Well, hello everybody out there in Dairyland. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. Uh, your host Keith Schweitzer here this week. Uh, our co-host here, uh, my co-host Luke uh, Mahalik, uh, had some other engagements today, so it's uh, me at the helm of this ship. So I'm excited to have Dr. Mike Steele, big deal Mike Steele, the, uh, an associate professor of animal physiology in the Department of Animal Bioscience at the U- University of Guelph with us today. Uh, why don't you say hi, Mike? Thanks, Keith, for this invitation for your podcast. I'm excited to be here. So let's get right into it. I know uh, we're just kind of on a little bit of a time constraint this week. Uh, maybe if you just want to give us a little bit about your background. I know you, Mike, I've known you for quite a few years now, but uh, maybe some of the people in the audience don't. Yeah, I grew up on a dairy farm in southwestern Ontario in Oxford County, just north of Tempsford, and loved dairy cows my entire life. I went to the University of Guelph. Um, after that, I did a master's degree and uh, worked in China for a year and was a nutritionist for master feeds. And I came back to do my PhD at the University of Guelph, did a brief postdoc, and then I worked uh, as a researcher and also in technology applications for trial nutrition. That's where we we started the work together, Keith. But yep. after after that time, I went to the University of Guelph after uh, almost three years at Trout Nutrition. Uh, went had the opportunity to be a professor at the University of Alberta for four years. That's where I really started to do calf research, as as you know. And recently, I moved to the University of Guelph two years ago to continue my professorship. Yeah, as in uh, most uh, people that we do have on the podcast, Mike, I like to do a little bit of Googling on them just to see kind of what they're about. So I I did some and it's actually, you've got quite an impressive resume. There's some some really neat accolades and some different awards that you've won over the last little bit. So can you maybe just kind of touch on, you know, some of the things that you do with the Canadian uh, Society of Animal Science and maybe your award that you just won last year with the uh, American Society of Animal Science? Yeah, so I'm actively participating in the Canadian Society of Animal Science. I was uh, president not that long ago. I still serve on their committees and quite an active uh, board member. And I really believe in some of these societies, such as the Canadian Society of Animal Science. And I see there's great value, especially for students. So I support it as much as I can. Uh, And I've been fortunate enough to be awarded some awards from Canadian Society as well as the American Society of Animal Science. And this year from the American Dairy Science Association, I received uh, what's called the ADSA Foundation Award. I'm not really sure what it really means though, Keith, Uh, but yeah, (laughs) I guess, I guess it's a good sign. Uh, I always find it awkward to receive awards to be very honest with you, but uh, I guess it's a good sign that what we're doing in the lab is making a difference and people like what we're doing uh, from our research standpoint, also teaching and knowledge transfer. Yeah. And I know like over the past few years, I know you've wanted to, you've talked about getting more into extension, especially through Guelph. And, and I know you've got your influence on a lot of uh, undergrads and uh, some masters and some PhD students. So maybe do you want to talk about maybe some of the things that you're doing in your lab right now that are kind of on the cutting edge? 
Yeah, from a research standpoint, I'm still doing a lot of calf work from prenatal programming now all the way to colostrum management, the neonate, pre-weaning, um, not just quantity, but also the quality of the milk being fed or the milk replacer. And now we're looking at not only weaning strategies, but post-weaning and how to feed an animal between two and 22 months of, of life. That's an area that we'll, we'll dive into quite a bit. But I, over the last five years, it's really been based on calf nutrition and gut development and making sure that we develop calves quickly, but also make sure that they have a sound gut so that they don't get sick, in particular in the first weeks of life. Yeah. 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 And so what really kind of, what's the basis that drove you into studying nutrition? Like, I know you're quite passionate about it, but like, was there a turning point in your career that said, okay, I'm going to go into, yeah. into research? I, I think I always kind of knew I would end up in research, but I became a nutritionist in undergrad at the University of Guelph, where that was the only thing that really excited me, even more than genetics. I thought I, I grew up on a dairy farm where we bred cattle a lot and I really enjoyed the genetic side but I found out it was all quantitative statistics and that I, I like biology too much and I like biochemistry and that's where it fit in really well and I guess I always kind of knew I would go into research I just like the challenge of it um, but I just kind of accepted it when I worked at Trow and I started working with students it, it became very obvious that this is where I need to be and I need to be around these students with new ideas and just supporting them all the time. That's where I found my personal niche from a professional standpoint. Yeah. And I mean, you know, going back to, I guess when I first started working with you at Trow, like you could just really see that your passion was there to teach and, and to help farmers uh, to do better with their calves. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was really neat from my end to see, and and you could kind of tell at the point at that point, like, oh, Mike's going to go off, and he's he he's going to be professor. He's going to wear the the tweed coat with the leather elbow patches. It's and, it's true. I know yeah. you guys were calling it back <laughs> then, but it it took me why why I think I was so successful in academia the last six years is because of that trial experience, and I learned how to you know, properly evaluate research propositions and communicate with industry more. And that's such a valuable tool if you're an academic these days. Um, so I, I have a lot to thank for Trow. Uh, they gave me the opportunity. I think why things have been going so well in academia is because of that experience I gained there. So maybe just to elaborate on that a little bit, like what do you have any specific things that you found that you learned out in the field that do translate into academia? Yeah, communication, firstly, uh, number one, especially with farmers, the end users of your research. I, I've, I figured out pretty quickly if I learned how to communicate with farmers really well, that I, they can help me guide my research program. So all my questions really come from farmer questions that I receive at conferences or one-on-one -on -one communication with them. So that's what I learned a lot uh, about. And then uh, just how industry research works is very different from academia in learning the value of having a value proposition in your research. Um, so that's a different way of doing research compared to academia. So that was really valuable to kind of understand that language of industry research before going into academia where it's a very different style of research but is dependent upon industry collaboration. So can you maybe just touch on the like the you mentioned the uh, the value proposition so is that like like a end use, like what is the purpose of this research? Like, are we going to design a product or a management strategy out of this? Like, can you maybe explain that a little bit? Yeah. 
typically value propositions in research related to nutrition, and I'll just use the example of dairy cows here, uh, before a project starts, there has to be a value proposition. So if you're going to create an additive to cure gut health in dairy cows, um, you got to make sure that your market is there so that that will actually, you know, you're not going to spend more money on research rather than the overall benefit from selling a product. But what's happening a lot now is that it's not just about the profit of the company. It's about the profit of the farmer. So more and more companies realize that if we make our farmer a lot more profitable, we're going to be more profitable too. So the value proposition is twofold. It's the value that goes to the company, but also the value that goes to the farmer, which is kind of unique. So it's another side of things that we don't really see much of that in academia. I try my best to make sure that I have real numbers to make sure that my research has a big spread when if in a, and can potentially make a large impact, but it's a lot more fine tuned in industry which is, it's kind of interesting to see. So have you seen that change, I guess, over time? I know it's always been probably close to a decade since you've uh, kind of made the transition or, or, you know, have kind of merged the, the industry and the academia part in your career. I think just from my own standpoint, through the industry experience I gained, uh, yes. But as for industry research, I think it's always been um, under that model. And I, I just became aware of it more and learned how to work within that model more. Uh, because a lot of the research I do at the University of Guelph, and that's funded by our national or provincial governments, I need industry funds. So if I don't have industry funds, I can't do the research at all, uh, which I think is great because why would you, you want to do things that are relevant, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I really like our model here in Canada. I think we have the best research model compared to any other country in the world. Our, our researchers in, in dairy are really well funded, in my opinion. And there's lots of opportunity for us. So it, it's honestly one of the best times to do dairy cattle research. And I think Guelph is what, what attracted me back to Guelph is the team that we have here at Guelph is outstanding and the facilities that we have. Uh, so it's very exciting to be back and kind of translating my research career here at Guelph. Yeah. And I mean, from an industry side on, on my point of view is that what we're seeing now from meetings, you know, we were always importing uh, professors from American universities or Europe. And a lot of the stuff is now in our backyards. You know, when we're talking to a lot of different researchers and professors at Guelph, you know, they're showing up on not only a worldwide speaking uh, agenda, but, you know, they're showing up a lot here just in Ontario. Yeah, there's a lot of productive uh, researchers at the University of Guelph. There's no doubt about it, but there's this younger generation that was recently hired in um, they're going to go on to do great things. Um, Dr. David Renault, Eduardo Ribeiro, Christine Bays, Trevor DeVries is still classified as a young professor, uh, even though he's published Yourself. more than 100 papers in JDS. <laughs> yeah, like uh, we're, it's just a very exciting time to be a dairy researcher at Guelph. And, I know we, we get, we definitely get spoiled. And, and you can tell with a lot of the, uh, even the, the quality of the farm kids coming home now, like they, they're way more prepared and way more, more hungry to do great things. And I think a lot of it is the basis or the research or the, sorry, the education that they are getting at, at Guelph nowadays. Not to say that it wasn't bad before because by no means was it, uh, it was always been a sought after place to go to school, you know, worldwide. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting to see the evolution of the university. Yeah, I, I'm actually, I just finished marking a midterm. I'm really impressed by some of these students. Um, 
I think we've got one of the strongest pools here at Guelph. And one of my big initiatives is to make them a lot more knowledgeable about industry before they get into industry. So if that's why I'm exposing these students in fourth year to real farmers. Even though we're online right now, you still have to talk to a real farmer. You still have to come up with a recommendation for a real farmer to get them used to it. And uh, I think if we can fill in that little bridge or that little gap, I think they'll, they'll go on to do great things in this industry. So. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. And I mean, we see a lot of new hires and stuff coming through and, you know, just the, yeah, the quality of the kids coming out now is, is quite impressive. So, but back to nutrition a little bit. So I know your kind of focus of it, like I had mentioned before, I was looking on Google and things like that. And a lot of your papers are all focused on gut health. So what is it that fascinates you so much about the gut that uh, drives you to do all this research? Uh, so there's a scientific part of me that's really fascinated by how adaptive it is and how it communicates with different compartments. And the scientific side is very exciting for me. Uh, in combination, the relevance of looking at gut health in our dairy industry, I think, is very large. Uh, I think it's extremely important, especially during the pre-weaning period where we're still getting 50% of calves with, with scours or diarrhea in the first weeks of life. Also, weaning stresses is really fascinating scientifically, but you know we're still getting a lot of respiratory disease during that time. Uh, it looks like some lower gut acidosis is occurring too. So I, I just think that there's too many questions related to gut health, and I've just talked about calves there because that's been my focus, but I've started to do more transition cow work and will probably do more in the future, but uh, the transition dairy cow, I believe, suffers from a lot of gastrointestinal ailments in early lactation. And I think the relevance of this and the potential to improve gut health, and that will translate into a healthier animal that produces more milk efficiently, uh, is quite substantial. So I, I'm excited by this area. and I've chose to, to focus more on the calf for the first uh, six years. Now, I guess I'm a professor for six years. Uh, but first six years has been totally focused on the calf. Um, and that's mainly from a practical standpoint. Um, I think I felt there was too many researchers doing ruminal acidosis work when I started academia. And I, I noticed no one was studying the calf. Uh, so I thought this is a good starting point uh, because no one's here. And it's very, very relevant, especially with 50% of calves getting sick in the first weeks of life with, with uh, gut health related issues. So have you, have you seen like a, from an industry level, have you seen that, that number change? Like, do you think what you're focusing on and bringing to light with producers, like, are they getting the message? I think they are. I, there's no way I can truly say the impact of our research program is, but I can speak collectively all of our calf research, I think has contributed to a reduction in mor morbidity and mortality across the globe when it comes to uh, calves. Now, I'm not saying it's me, I'm saying it's a collection of a whole bunch of people and, and farmers really working hard in this area over the last 10 years, but our numbers are going down. They're still kind of high though. Like, uh, you know, 5% and, and, you know, above 35% mortality and morbidity, like that, those are still very high. So I still think there's a lot more work to do, but I, I think that we're moving in the right direction especially the last 20 years here in Ontario is very different compared to the rest of the world. But I think that we've been very progressive here in Ontario with calf management. Sure. There's still a lot of things that we can do to improve, but you know, you take 
how we were feeding restricted levels of milk and then all of a sudden you're seeing so many farms across Ontario feeding elevated plains of milk. Uh, it's really impressive to see how swiftly the farmers are adopting these new technologies. So if our lab can play a little bit of a role in that, I think it, we're very, very happy. It's just difficult to truly quantify. <laughs> yeah, and, and like from our end, I know one of the biggest complaints that we have out in the industry right now is like, what do I do with all my heifers? Well, there's been so much in improvement in uh, reproduction, and then there's been so much improvement in calf husbandry that we've created a whole nother system of problems <laughs> where everybody's got carrying way too much heifer inventory. And I think that a lot of that is uh, partly in what your, what your group's doing and, uh, and kind of bringing, bringing out to producers. Well, thanks, Keith. We'll, we'll keep on trying. <laughs> We're trying our best. But yeah, we still have a lot of more work to do. That's for sure. Um, so what, in your opinion, you're at a little bit different level than what we are at the farm. Like I think a lot of the times that what happens in academia, you know, there's quite a lag in time until it gets down to kind of a, to a producer level. So what is the next big thing that you're going to, that you're seeing that it's going to kind of impact, impact the farm? Um, I, I think there's not just one big large thing, but probably a multitude of things. And, some, some areas that we're really focused on now and we think that can improve quite a bit is um, understanding colostrum more and understanding what else is in colostrum other than just immunoglobulins. So we're spending a lot of time figuring out what these other bioactives do, like insulin is really high in it, uh, oligosaccharides or these natural prebiotics, they're really high in colostrum. So that's a huge branch of our research. But in addition to the colostrum, it's also the transition milk so that second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth milking, it's also full of a lot of these bioactives. So I think that uh, what, what a large thrust in our lab over the next, you know, has happened for the last three years, but another probably five years is to understand how we can properly transition these animals from colostrum to a whole milk or a milk replacer. So this is, you know, we've just got started. We've just published a couple papers in this area, but there'll be a lot more uh, coming out in this field in the future. Uh, in addition to the colostrum work, uh, there's also the milk replacer work that we're, we're also studying. So there's a big difference in whole milk and milk replacer. And I think that we need to pay closer attention to it. And I think that there's a lot of potential to improve the quality of milk replacers being fed. I'm not against feeding milk replacers by any means. I think in some farms, it's a great option, actually, and a preferred option over whole milk. But I think the composition, we can do a lot of work there. So those are two big areas related to the pre-weeding that I think you're going to see transform a lot over the next uh, five years, but that you can already see that they're already transforming. You know, some examples of that are farmers feeding more transition milk from their own cows or formulating colostrum milk replacer whole milk mixes in the first days of life. Uh, the milk replacer, you're seeing you know, some more different formulations, less lactose, more fat, more people looking at fatty acid composition in milk replacers. You're already seeing this work that not just my lab, but a collection of labs across the world are, are trying to put forth just to really challenge some of the basic concepts that we do. But those are just two examples. We, we do lots of work in weaning, post weaning. I know you're excited by, by you know, feeding dry TMRs and things like that. But um, those are the two areas that I think we're the most invested in right now as a lab uh, that I, th I think will change a lot or the findings from this research will change the way that we look at feeding colostrum and feeding 
the mixture to the milk or the milk replacer and that composition of the milk replacer. So if we could just kind of go back to Clostrum a little bit, like I know like the whole talk has been about passive transfer and seeing IgG and certain levels of that, but can you maybe explain to some producers some of the other uh, key factors that you're seeing with Clostrum that are kind of, you know, impacting that calf? Yeah, so it's, it's not just IgG. First of all, there's many other immunoglobulins. There's many, there's, there's hundreds of other proteins. Some of them we haven't even identified and we don't know what they do exactly. But we know some that are very high like insulin, growth hormone, IGF-1. These are all growth factors that are really important for the calf. And they're at very high levels in transition milk and colostrum. So we should be delivering them. Uh, they, they, they actually need it at this time. So I think that's really important. The carbohydrate fraction, there's a bunch, we call them oligosaccharides. Basically, the, the colostrum and the transition milk are full of prebiotics that the calf needs. Uh, and a lot of times we're not delivering them. And on the fatty acid side, it, the composition of the colostrum fat and the transition milk fat is very different. And there must be a reason why, and we're not delivering it. Uh, so it's really high in, in fatty acids like omega-6. Now, why is it? We're trying to figure that out. Uh, but, but it looks like just naturally the cow is producing it. So we should be delivering it to that calf. And I think in most farms, we're not doing a good job of doing that. Uh, but we've studied insulin recently at an experiment at Lois that we'll probably be submitting the Journal of Dairy Science next year. Uh, we're about to do some oligosaccharide work, some fatty acid work in this area too. So I just think there's so much more to explore than just IgG. There, there's literally thousands of these other bioactives that we know kind of what they do or we don't even understand what they do, but they're there. And we should figure out how, how, how they fit into a management scheme. It's kind of that old adage, you know, you don't know, like the more you learn, the less you know type thing. So like the, it, it just seems like the deeper we're diving into this, the more we're realizing, wow, we don't know a thing about why this happens. I know. That's why my job's so awesome, Keith. <laughs> it's like never, end the, I'll, I'll, it's impossible for me to be bored ever. Uh, just one question leads to 10 others. So. And I mean, it's amazing. Like even in the the short kind of time I've been in my career, like what, what we've seen, you know, 15 years ago to now kind of what producers are even just doing on the farm. Like it blows my mind on how fast farmers adapt to the kind of the new, the new thing that's coming out and they're saying, Oh, well we should be doing that. So we're taking kind of what academia is saying and trying to get it applied to the farm and the farmers are, you know, they're doing these things and we're seeing incredible results out there. So it's, it's really just kind of, it's really exciting. And, you know, you're really excited about what you're doing and that kind of filters right down to, uh, right down through everybody. So it's really exciting to see. Yeah. It's truly impressive. Like some of the questions that I receive from farmers have been amazing kind of light bulb moments for me. So I, I really value that communication with directly with them. So are you doing uh, quite a bit more extension through Guelph? Because I know that was one of the things that we talked about when, when you took the job is that you wanted to do more. Yeah. Uh, so I do as much extension as possible. I, I don't have an extension appointment. I do this more for fun and, uh, and because I find it very helpful. So I, I, I do think that, and I'd love to be a part of this, is making this connection between dairy farmers again in Guelph. Uh, where, you know, I, I really have been around the world. Like this is an amazing university it's uh, the number one university in dairy, in my opinion, worldwide. Wageningen is competitive. Wisconsin can be competitive, but we're doing great mm -hmm. things here. 
and I, it was kind of shocking to me coming from Alberta where I knew all the milk producers there and uh, there was great communication. I, I want to have more of that dialogue here with Ontario dairy producers. That's why coming on your podcast and other events, you know, we had a calf conference last November where we invited producers to campus. I think that we need to start developing this relationship more and we're all keen to do it here at the University of Guelph. We're just, it's going to take time to rebuild that relationship, but I, I find extension, although Amafra does a great job, but I still think it's a part of what we do and it's a very important personally for me to do. So um, I guess we're going to have conferences next year. They'll probably be online, um, <laughs> but I look forward to the day that we can come together in person, uh, even if it's outside. Um, I just, I just think that that way of knowledge transfer is far superior, but, but online is also, also very positive. Too. Yeah. And I know throughout my career, like I, I learned the best things from farmers because they're the ones, you know, elbows deep in it, doing it every day. And they know their animals and better than anybody could ever walk. Nobody can walk on the farm and say, you should do this and you'll see this because I failed at that a lot of times where if you try this, this should happen. And it doesn't like cows constantly surprise you. The so. classic example is like milk fat depression. We were feeding fish oil back in the eighties. The farmers were feeding fish oil back in the eighties to depress milk fat, to ship more yep. protein. Uh, like farmers already knew how to depress milk fat and, we just had to, as scientists, figure out the mechanisms, basically <laughs> mop, mopping up the mess behind that they left. Um, yeah, you have to listen to the farmers. Uh, I, and I, I don't know, it's fun to be around these new profs at Quell because I think we all share the same, um, same, same idea with respect to listening as much as we can. That's actually a perfect segue, Mike. I think we should get into some of the questions that came from uh, some producers and some colleagues of mine. So I hope you've got your uh, thinking hat on. And, and to be honest, we're not always looking for the right answer, but the best answer. So keep that in mind. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, so this is a pretty uh, interesting one. So what are some strategies that producers should look at going into the winter months uh, as it pertains to calves with feeding them? Like, should they increase the amount of fat that they're feeding? Like, is, is there certain things that they should be doing? Yeah, I think that I, as you're going into the winter months and if temperature is not being controlled, you have to feed more milk or milk replacer. So I'd be increasing the quantity being fed and feeding more fat during the winter is quite common. And there's no problem with that. That's, uh, I, I think, bumping the fat up. I know your product goes up to 20% fat now uh, in the winter months. So yeah, I think something like that would work really, really well. But you'd be surprised how much you have to increase their overall intake when it's minus 20 out. So you should be increasing, maybe even increasing uh, their intake by one meal. Even if you're feeding two meals a day, increase it by, by another meal or feed larger meals. But they definitely require a lot more energy during this time. That can come from composition of the milk replacer, but that's not enough. The quantity has to increase as well. So, so that's, like that's one thing. So is it a caloric thing? Like if you feed more milk replacer, like you're going to get more fat and more protein, or should we just be concentrating on putting more fat in? Um, like should we have, have a more concentrated, I guess, approach? Uh, I think both approaches work, but you're definitely going to have to feed more uh, because the energy just to keep them, keep their body temperature at, at 39 degrees, that, that requires a lot of energy when they're outside in a hutch or they're in a, open front barn somewhere as neonates uh, that 
they really need a lot of calories during that time to, to get over that. And they're not consuming the calories from the starter in the first month of life. The, the energy intake from starter is less than 10% of total energy intake in the first month of life. So, so you have to feed them more milk, either through larger meals or, or more meals per day. Okay. In addition to increasing the energy density of the milk replacer, which is also a great idea, as you mentioned. Uh, was there anything else that uh, you want to touch on with that question? Just like water, especially outside, if making sure they have clean water all the time and it's not freezing. I, I think that's really important. They're still drinking a lot of water, even if they consume a lot of milk or milk replacer, but also during this step-down process and weaning, they need the water intake uh, during these cold months. And I see on too many farms, just not enough fresh water for these calves. And it's completely related to how much they'll actually consume of starters. So they go hand in hand. And if you're restricting water intake, you're going to restrict uh, starter intake, then you're going to restrict growth. So I think those are the two big ones that jump out of me when I have this vision of these calves in Ontario going through the, <laughs> the winter months. Those are the two that jump out at me a lot. Is it the cold that gets them or is it a temperature fluctuation in your opinion that is harder on them? I just think about it as uh, I'm kind of simplistic in my way, but I do think it's a cold, but you bring up a really good point. I think that these fluctuations, especially with what we just went through on the other side with heat stress, I think that mm -hmm. that actually affects them uh, as much. It's just, I, I can't put a number or, a good value on that but it's a really that that is really interesting what you mentioned because i do think the fluctuations can damage them uh just uh, to a different extent but i i think it is more simplistic uh it's it's mainly the temperature okay. but that's that's a very good point keith yep. when are you doing your grad studies at the university of well <laughs> Okay, are we going to return turn this podcast into me recruiting you to the University of Guelph now? Or, I, or maybe I, I think I might stay. have to do my undergrad first. I don't want to make Dave Crossan mad. I'm, I'm, I'm scared of making Dave Crossan upset, so I'm going to leave that off. We'll talk off the air. <laughs> yeah. um, and kind of segue from that question, so can you overfeed a calf? No, I don't think you can, especially during the pre-weaning period. Post-weaning, I think after a couple months after weaning, yeah, you can. But before that, I don't think you can, especially if it's voluntary intake. So if they want it, let them have it. Why, why not? When they're not consuming starter and their average daily gains or like their feed efficiency is never going to be that high as the first weeks of life. Yeah. I don't understand why we don't do it. I, I, I still, I, I understand the other side of restriction from a cost standpoint. And also weaning is probably a, a little bit easier to do if you wean them earlier in life, if you're feeding less milk. But to me, um, oh, first of all, why would you want to restrict them when they're so efficient? And, you know, I, I don't understand how you could really debate that one. I, I think you should feed as much milk as possible or, or at high levels, especially in the first three to four weeks of life. So if baby wants it, baby gets it. Just like every other mammal in livestock, actually, uh, pigs, yeah, ad lib, yeah, yeah. everything's uh, ad lib. Cow, like beef calves, beef calves, ad lib. So, yep. you know, I understand the economics. Uh, I understand that you can still raise animals, and if you wean them early, they do do better compared to a calf fed more milk. But you just have to wean them differently if you feed more milk. You so you wean you're, them later and more gradually. So you're like, can we preface this and maybe say in the first? five, six weeks, like ad lib milk and then 
then start into the weaning process and, you know, try and get them transitioned onto the, onto the grain. I'm not so convinced of going all the way ad lib to five weeks, but I think that feeding a lot in the first three to four weeks is not a problem at all. Uh, Then you could start stepping them down that you, you know, there still needs a lot more work to be done here. You see the one thing that you definitely don't want to do based on some of the research that we've done is do the ad lib and then cut them down the six liters overnight which is programmed in some automated feeders to do that, I, I definitely don't think that's a good idea. I, w- I would have more of a very gradual depression overall milk intake if you're going to ad lib. And I would start at that, th- that four week mark and do it over f- several weeks. Like we don't need to, like a weeding protocol doesn't have to be two weeks or one week. It, it can be three to four. Some of the best farms that I've seen wean animals don't have automation, but they still have four week step downs. So I think if you can manage it and keep it simple on your farm, it it is possible to have a more extended step down during the weaning process and have calves that consume well over a starter, well over a kilogram of starter, even before they're weaned. So, so this might be a little more of a hot button issue, but you know, if you, if you don't want to answer that, that's fine. We can go to the next question, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to answer this one, Keith. No, well, <laughs> just, just for the folks at home, I have no idea what's coming to me right now. This yeah. is quite the preface. <laughs> You've got me. Uh, I'm completely hooked on this question. Yeah. Uh, what's the deal with um, like fresh calf bolses? I don't want to name any, any names, but there are, there are bolses that you give to calves right away. Like, are they good? Are they bad? Are they otherwise? A lot of them contain, are you, are you talking the boluses that contain colostral components? Uh, farmers are being well, fed? Or well, antimicrobials? Antimicrobials, yeah. I'm a little bit suspicious of this. I, I, I think that we not only inject uh, too many antimicrobials in calves, but we also feed too many. And I'm speaking mainly in the veal industry. And, and it's mm-hmm. really not their their fault at all and in some replacement animals too you're seeing oxytetracycline going in or neomycin but i think that we overuse antimicrobials that's just my personal statement um i think that it's a lot of education has to happen in order for us to overcome that and i think there's a lot of misuse of some of these products now it doesn't come from a bad place. You, you have a sick calf, you want to do anything you can. And if a veterinarian or a, a farm consultant is saying, do it, of course, you're going to follow it. But I just think that we need to educate ourselves a little bit more and not necessarily go straight for the antimicrobial first. Maybe look at the other options like a diarrhea. We should be putting electrolytes into this animal, doing fluid therapy first for several days before going to an antimicrobial. Um, but but I understand why there's this sense of urgency to save calves because we all want to do that. Uh, but I think it's actually backfiring sometimes. That's my personal opinion. So the, I really expected a more controversial question, Keith. You're kind of disappointing me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think I, I uh, answered or I went down the wrong bolus thing. I was thinking yeah. more of the, uh, like the, I was actually going back to colostrum boluses. So that like before you feed them colostrum, you give them this bolus. Are they? I, I just don't understand why you wouldn't. Here's my personal opinion: is why wouldn't you want to feed a colostrum itself during that time? Um, that's what it naturally requires. Why feed a bolus with colostral components on top of it? Um, that's obviously dehydrated, not mixed in the composition that it's going to be taken up by naturally by the calf. 
Um, I think in, you know, I haven't seen a lot of data, so I, sh I can't really comment. And if you are, you, are you distributing this? I'd like to know more about no. this, these products. Uh, no, but anyone listening to this, I, yeah. I'd love to know more, but I don't think that there's a lot of peer reviewed manuscripts that have been published uh, in this area, uh, but I could be wrong. It was, a, it was a question that was asked to me by a producer and I think I was on the same train of thought as you. Like, if you have time to do the bolus, why wouldn't you just give it colostrum right away rather than give this bolus and then wait and then do the colostrum? You know, there could be a benefit from the added colostral components getting in there, but why not just feed more colostrum then is my yeah. question and might make sure your colostrum quality is the highest it can be. I think sometimes they're used as a bandage... Um, Bandage solution, and, and I think that we should just focus more on the basics sometimes. Uh, the next question be, uh, so should producers suckle or tube electrolytes? You know, I think, firstly, you should make sure you feed them. If, they, if the calf will suckle, I think that I, that would be my preferred option. But if it's going to make you spend hours a day in your calf nursery and uh, frustrate your staff, uh, I, would, I think the most important thing is to get the fluids in them. So I would tube if labor is a constraint. But my preference is always to have them suckle. Um, really no scientific reason other than possibly getting them their, their reflex going again, getting them you know, more interested in, in suckling and, and getting them back on milk is what you really wanna do. So, so that's my preference is to feed the same way that you're feeding the milk. Um, just so that you can and, and feed, make sure you're not feeding it right after the milk meal, but give some space mm -hmm. in between all those meals with the electrolyte. Uh, I think that that's the best way to do it. Okay. So maybe if you're doing your chores in the morning, you know, first yeah. thing, if you're doing feeding twice a day, maybe at lunchtime, you give them electrolyte therapy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But if okay. they're not suckling, you got to tube it. Okay. Yeah. So I guess it's on the severity of the calf on like how dehydrated the calf would be. Yeah. Yeah, so okay. making sure that you're properly diagnosing it by you know, doing skin tents and things of that nature is really important. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about colostrum. Um, so I get this question all the time. I actually just got it this morning from a producer. What affects colostrum quantity? Yeah, well, parity, <laughs> uh, yeah. Is the simple answer is parity, of course. Uh, there's been some work suggesting that seasonality plays some role roles in it. Um, I think prepartum diet does too. And so we have two experiments that will be running over the next year to figure out how that affects colostrum quality. But there's some evidence that, that diet, environment, seasonality... Uh, can can impact colostrum quality and quantity. It's mixed across the board, and there's surprisingly not a lot of research done in this area. Uh, that's why we want to do these two experiments in beef and dairy at Guelph and, and go from there. But uh, one study that's quite famous showed that if you overfeed energy prepartum, you'll be reducing the um, the total amount of immunoglobulins being produced. There is no difference in colostrum volumes, but um, I'm hoping to have a lot more data on this actually in 2021. I just forged a new, new collaboration where I have access to a couple thousand uh, colostrum samples and the information from all these cows. So we're, we're trying to work out what's really affecting quantity, but also quality. But 
it's surprising that we don't have an answer for this, a clear one. I am really surprised too, because I've, it seems like I get asked this question every year and actually when it comes down to it, seasonality, typically in the spring and the fall. So I don't know when, if it's the photo period changing, like if it's once we get over that other 12 hours of light, 12 hours of of daytime or sorry, nighttime. But uh, I always see, I get the phone calls then. And I guess that's maybe I should just start writing down on a calendar when I start receiving phone calls about (laughs) no colostrum. So like, it it doesn't seem like the quality has changed at all, but the quantity is definitely Mm -hmm. changed. And yeah, that's a big thing. Like, yeah, and that's why when we do our colostrum research, we're not looking at volume or IgG concentration. We're looking at total mass of IgG or total mass of insulin being produced. So it's great that you're focusing so much on volume key. Yeah. Well, it's it's just the question that I get. You know, I can't like a lot of the sediment that we get from the producers is I don't have enough colostrum to feed my calf, and. Mm-hmm. So I asked, and then when one producer asked, then I start asking other producers that I'm getting talking to. And, and a lot of times you'll see that, you know, you know, I'm running that problem too right now. Whereas, uh, so that kind of takes me away from nutrition and, and gets into some other environmental factors, but I, I still do think nutrition might play a role in that as well. So. Yeah. Parity, seasonality, and energy density of the prepartum diet, I think are the three big ones. And then Hopefully we can figure out more. We're actually doing an experiment at the Burford research station right now okay. uh, related to that. Perfect. Um, and then I had a, a producer question again, is pumping fresh cows with uh, probiotic mixes help or hinder fresh cow performance? You know what I'm talking about? Like you get the, the blend from your vet or whoever like that. And then you're doing the five, like a five gallon pump with it. You know, it'll have some vitamins and some minerals and some other stuff in it. So how much total fluid goes into the ribbon? You know, a lot of times producers are mixing it up into like either like a two gallon pail or a five gallon pail. You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking to cows. Probiotic not- mixtures, yeah. Yeah. I first things first, you have to see if the probiotic mixture mixture has been published showing efficacy in in a journal. Okay, so if they don't have three papers showing efficacy, I wouldn't use it at all. Um, I think that there's just a lot of diversity in the quality or sorry, variability in the quality of probiotics in the marketplace. And I think in particular, dosing animals at one time point uh, is kind of risky. You know, there's a really classic experiment where they took a bunch of cannulated cows in Wisconsin uh, with, with holes in their rumen. They swapped the rumen contents completely. So we're not talking about, you know, the CFUs of a, of a probiotic going in there. We're talking about you know, over a hundred kilograms of contents full of microbes uh, that are being switched. And these cows go back to their original microbial community within a couple of days. So That's even amazing. with that massive transformation, like it, it's all back to normal, largely because of the host, the host dictates what's going on. So the response to these probiotics is quite variable. And I think um, it, a lot, a lot of it depends on the host, but that one time point, I think at some, some probiotics, it could work, but most of them have to be continually fed, uh, or delivered to this animal in some way. I, I think this idea of first thing, uh, right after lactation is, there's not a lot of evidence that it helps anecdotal okay. possibly, but, uh, going through the, the rigors of peer review, which I value, um, I, I really wouldn't use anything that doesn't have three peer-reviewed papers showing efficacy. Uh, that's the minimum standard. Yeah. 
All right. And one last question. What does the future of dairy farming look to Mike, look like to Mike Steele? Globally, provincially, federally? Uh, we could start maybe globally and get down to provincially. I think that provincially we're, we're kind of, you know, we always talk about being five years behind Europe, but I think we're catching up pretty fast here with the, the way that we adopt new technologies. I think that the biggest thing that's going to transform over the next 10 to 20 years and it's going to take a while to get our, get our heads around this is to use a lot of the information that we're collecting on farms to actually develop management programs. And I'm going to just for simplicity, say nutritional programs. Mm -hmm. So right now we're collecting so much data on these farms, automated feeders with calves, automated milking systems for cows. Um, and we're doing really very little with this data. Uh, we should be feeding animals on an individual level. I'll just use an example of a calf. A calf that's 30 kilograms shouldn't be consuming the same meal allotments as a calf that's born at 60 kilograms. There's a big difference there. Uh, we have the technology to feed these animals based on body weight right now in front of us on many farms, actually, and no one's using it. Uh, I just think that that's going to take time. We already know how to use this, some, some of this information to make farmers more efficient but it's going to take a long time and there's probably some low hanging fruit to just show, Hey, if we use this information in this way and we collect all this big data and we can transform it to make a management decision on the farm that doesn't require tremendous, that's practical, that can be easily implemented. That's where we're going in nutrition. And I think overall management of, of animals. So I could even say, see a day you see it in the beef industry already, but, we're producing, we're feeding animals, dairy cattle differently based on their genotype or, or, you know, that's already in the beef industry, but I see it coming in the dairy industry and I, I see this idea and I'm using the term precision management of animals to be probably the biggest thrust in the next, not just 10 years, because we, we don't have enough time to really get there in 10 years, but I, I think the next 10 to 20 years, that's, that's where you'll see a lot of transformation and looking at animals as a, on an individual basis, using this knowledge uh, that we're collecting from all these sensors on a farm. So you're, you're thinking like if we're doing uh, like genomic testing on these animals, we've already got a got a, a blueprint on how nutritionally we can approach this this animal. Yeah, that's a good example. You already see examples of that in humans. So I don't think it's a brave new world here. I, I think it's it's right in front of us, and we should start you know one piece by piece starting using this information like use an ams system anywhere um you know i don't see many farmers feeding multiple pellets you, you know they should like we should be able to design these rations so we can use we can feed more you know diets to our cows so that we can you know offer this precision uh but we're really not doing that right now so i think that's where our focus will be is you know using all this information that we're we're gathering from our experiments but learning how to adopt it in a precision management world and, and we're not good at it on the research side it, it's not i'm not pointing the fingers at industry or farmers I, I think that we also have to get really good at it and that's where the communication with farmers is really important was there anything else that you wanted to add mike or do you want to get this wrapped up i think that that's like from a big picture standpoint i think that's um 
I'll, uh, there's several other things that I th I'm sure that we're going to progress and achieve. And yeah, even here in Ontario, Canada, but also the world. But those, that's the biggest one I see in front of us to really tackle. No, but other than that, uh, no, I don't have any other comments other than this is great that you're doing this, Keith, and I really appreciate being a guest. Thanks, Mike. It was our pleasure to have you on. I know uh, we have a little bit of history going back a, a few years here, so it, it's really good to see kind of what you've kind of accomplished over the last few years. And it's really, I, I really enjoy having the podcast and bringing people that are, you know, local on and that have had kind of a global effect on the industry. So it's really great to have you, Mike. Oh, thank you very much, Keith. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and I look forward to sharing with you real soon.